0: We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These words from the Declaration of Independence are familiar to many of us, and yet it took 143 years for women to get the right to vote, and 189 years for black people to get the right to vote, and still today, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are still only words for many people. Here in Boston, life expectancy varies by 30 years, depending on where you live. In Roxbury, with many poor and black people, life expectancy is 59 years. In the Back Bay, wealthy and mostly white, life expectancy is 91 years. It's tough to have liberty. When you are in prison, the United States incarcerates 716 people for every 100,000 people. Our rate of incarceration is more than five times higher than most countries in the world. Millions of people in our country don't have health care, a decent job, good education, a home they can afford, and that makes it pretty hard to pursue happiness. So, on this show, you are going to meet people who are making it possible to have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. People today who are making the words of the Declaration of Independence come true. Hi, my name is Michael Jacoby Brown, and today we're honored to have with us Stanley Pollock of Teen Empowerment. Hi, Stanley. How are you? I'm good, Michael. How are you I'm doing? glad you could come in today. Thanks. Stanley, uh, Uh, You've been working for Teen Empowerment for decades now, but I'd like to start, can you tell us something about your upbringing, Uh, where you came from, where you were born, and where you lived when you were young, and also how you got your values?
1: Sure. Um, Well, Mm -hmm. I was born in Morristown, New Jersey. There's a little monument towards it. Uh, uh, I grew up in Booton, New Jersey, and, uh, which is a small town, about 9,000 people. Uh, my father owned a restaurant there, mm. and it was sort of a breakfast, lunch and dinner place, so you had the same people kind of come mm-hmm. in there uh, every week, so I got to know all kinds of different people. <coughs> and that was, um, that was very important that I, had, I got to know people who were doing very well, had a lot of money, mm. uh, which there, were, there was a, kind of an upper class in the town, and then there was a working class and poor people in the town mm-hmm. and people of color a small uh, community of uh, people of color in that uh, town as well. People did live very separately Mm. uh, there, but because I was in my father's restaurant and I actually ate with different people every night of the week, Mm. I got to know people across those barriers. And I think that was a pretty fundamental experience for me in terms of... uh, kind of orienting me to the differences in the world Mm. and also some of the inequities in the world as well. And uh, so I think that was a very uh, important experience in kind of uh, giving me a framework for my life.
0: And can you say a little bit more about the values? I know you told me before uh, about the values, your dad and mom who worked in, as you called it, the store, the restaurant. What are the kind of things they did that influenced you?
1: Yeah, um, that was a very important, you know, I think for everybody, your parents are, you know, your first models mm-hmm. of how to, how to live. And my father um, worked very hard, uh, you know, 16-hour days, uh, and uh, he um, connected with people across those barriers. Uh, he took care of some of the folks in in town, you know, sort of kept their money for them and that that sort of thing. Uh, And my father uh, had a very, um, egalitarian (coughs) uh, approach to life. Hmm. And that was important for me to see. My mother, on the other hand, had a lot of prejudices. Hmm. And uh, she expressed those prejudices. It was really, uh, you could call it prejudice, you could call it fear, but Hmm. she bought into a lot of the the stereotypes. Hmm. And uh, so I had those two kind of opposing images, really, in a way. And uh, uh, I um, I learned from both of them. Really, Uh, I I felt that you know uh, my mother's approach to life was limiting Mm. and unfair, Um, and uh, that so I was more drawn to my father's kind of approach to it. But both of those were important in terms of understanding how society works and how society does not work
0: mm-hmm and when you started working as a young adult I know you said you started working first with teens can you tell us a little bit about that and how that happened what attracted you about teens
1: yeah um, <coughs> well as like we were talking earlier I needed a job yeah you know, right. I needed to survive Join so that, club, that was right, in there right. and and this was in nineteen uh, I graduated from college in nineteen seventy-one mm-hmm. and the economy was very very flat. There was there wasn't a lot of opportunity, and there was a lot of political activism. And I mm-hmm. really could not see myself going into kind of corporate life, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, and the idea of working with teenagers just seemed like the right direction mm-hmm. to go to and go in. And the thing that attracted me about and still does attract me about working with teenagers is mm-hmm. that they're forming. They're not mm-hmm. totally formed. Adults right. tend to be kind of solidified in their attitudes. Mm. Uh, and what they, they feel about things, their opinions are kind of fixed, where young people can kind of turn on a dime <coughs> and be going in one direction and, going and then go in another. Mm. And that, that excited me, that kind of fluidity, that kind of openness, uh, that kind of excitement about you know, really engaging in, in, in life, and, and seeing hope you know, of, of, of making kinds of change. Maybe that gets disappointed at some point along, mm-hmm. along the line. But it, w- it was that energy um, that really attracted me to, to working with teenagers. The opportunity that I got was to work in uh, delinquent homes, which is what mm-hmm. they called them back then. Right uh, Now they call them treatment centers, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I, I had the opportunity to work in those homes. And, 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 and that was very affirming for me in terms mm-hmm. of uh, my abilities to connect with young people was uh, the most uh, kind of apparent skill that yeah. I had. So mm-hmm. that was one end of it. The other end of it was the oppression of the administrations that ran those facilities. Mm. So, um, you know, I had a lot of experiences where I was very successful working with young people and not so successful working with administrations and kind of battling those administrations to to view their young people as um, people that had something to offer. So these were Mm -hmm. disposable young people. These were young people who were labeled as, you know, um, uh, bad. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was not my approach, uh, and, uh, and that was not my experience as well. Um, you know, there were young people that faced many challenges, but they had a lot to offer as well. Mm-hmm. And that, that gave me mm-hmm. uh, the ability to connect with a lot of young people who um, maybe a lot of other people had more difficulty
0: doing. Right, you saw them as something, uh, people that had assets and possibility Correct. as opposed to need, just needs and Stuff. So you worked I know for a long time first in Somerville uh, for the city, you worked yeah. as a consultant for a lot of organizations mm-hmm. and then uh, several decades ago you were the founder of Teen Empowerment. Can you tell us a little bit more about Teen Empowerment specifically and how it differs from other sorts of youth development programs? Sure.
1: It really is a continuation of that that perspective, right? Mm. The perspective that young people are assets. So that, mm. that really is the the fundamental uh, assumption of that that teen empowerment is built on. Mm. That you know, where young people have all kinds of specific needs for services, they also have the ability to contribute,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: so that's the uh, that that's really the framework. Mm. So what teen empowerment is is it's a program that hires young people. Uh, to, and we hire all kinds of young people. Hires
0: mean pays them real pays money. Them. Yeah, they're, they're jobs. actual employees. That's
1: correct. Yeah, they okay. Are, they are employees. They are selected to represent their communities in terms of race and ethnicity, in terms of mm-hmm. neighborhood, which is very important when you're trying to build community, mm-hmm. and in terms of social and emotional development. That is, we hire young people who are doing very well, and we're hiring young people who have had very difficult experiences, mm-hmm. and maybe are still involved in some of those difficult experiences, mm-hmm. but are motivated to do something good in the world. And what's
0: the theory around that? You said you hired some people who are doing well. I assume you mean doing in well in school, traditional, Correct. and other folks that may be not doing so well in the traditional way of uh, how adults and schools and institutions see right. them. What's the thinking or theory behind that? That's really interesting well, to Well, just, just
1: to be specific, <coughs> it's young people who are connected to other young people in mm-hmm. the community who maybe aren't involved in gangs, and involved in drugs, involved in dysfunctional uh-huh. kinds of uh, behavior. The theory is if you want to reach those young people on mm-hmm. the street, you better have those young people involved in the, in the core leadership, really. That's one piece of the theory, and as an organizer, I'm sure you're yeah, yeah. You know, familiar with that. And the, the, the other is that, uh, that these young people have something to offer that they, mm-hmm. they understand uh, some, uh, some of the realities there, mm-hmm. and um, they have skills. And some of them have very mm. strong uh, you know, organizing skills. They mm-hmm. may be organizing in the wrong direction, but they are organizers. And they may be yeah. leading in the wrong direction, but they are leaders right. as well. So they can be very, very bright, some, right. some you know, just in very traditional ways, really, mm-hmm. but disconnected from school, disconnected from family or whatever. Uh, and, and, uh, and or have other kinds of uh, um, skills that are really mm-hmm. fundamentally important uh, You know, so so that's that's the theory behind uh, reaching out to young people who have had uh, more difficulty uh, And then the other piece of it is integration right so the mm-hmm. the way programs generally work is they work with High-risk youth, mm-hmm. or they work with youth who are going to college, mm-hmm. or the, you know they work with kids who are going into trades or whatever. But they tend to be separated, hmm. and that means that they get reinforced by their peer group, oh, and I that see. so that's particularly uh, negative uh, phenomena when you look at young people who are grouped by their dysfunction. So we have DYS oh, Department of Youth Services. You right. go into a DYS facility or with other young people who are having difficulty. Right. The staff's trying to teach you a different way of being, but you're learning a lot from your um, peers. Yeah, teenagers. And so it's sort like of recognizing of us, that right. peer culture and the and the and the power of that peer culture, and trying to break down the 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 kind of segregation, uh, the separation, so that young people who are doing well and young people who are not doing well can influence each other. So uh, you
0: hire uh, a group of them, some doing well in the traditional sense, yeah, correct. and how big is that group every? year or semester? How does it work? Well, we have sites.
1: We have two sites in Boston. We have a site in Somerville, Massachusetts. We have a site in Rochester, New York. Mm -hmm. We're about to have a second site in Rochester, New York, as well. At each site, we hire uh, about 14 young people. 14. That's the group. Mm -hmm. That's That's great.
0: Groups above 15 tend to... Form yeah. cliques. Uh, yeah, well, something there's we learn from a, yeah, there's, organizational there's, theory, anyway.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. Uh, we we have a whole series of different things that we do. Sometimes uh-huh. we actually have more than fourteen, but uh-huh. we, are, we generally hire fourteen young people, and seven boys and seven girls, and uh-huh. that's a very kind of rigorous okay. uh, effort to keep it gender balanced. Okay. Uh, yeah. And and uh, and then, as I said, representing the different communities that you know. So, if we're working in Boston, we want the different housing developments mm-hmm. represented in there, and the different neighborhoods, and and so forth, right. in that group.
0: And and so, what do you actually do uh, when after you hire them? And is this sort of done on a school year basis, or summer yeah. too, or how does it work? What actually? Do the young people do after they're hired? What's their job?
1: Yeah, their job is to meet uh, every day of the week, uh, Monday mostly Monday through Friday. They work two to three hours a day during the school year, mm-hmm. so that's a seven about a seventh month mm-hmm. deal. Yeah, and then we actually have a, a, a seven-week program that we do in the summer, which is very similar. It's a little bit more hours during each day. Uh, they meet every day, and they. Analyze, what their job is is to analyze the community that is. What hmm. are the most powerful issues in the community? Hmm. What are the issues that if you worked on would have the biggest impact on hmm. the rest of those issues? Uh, then develop a strategy to oh, have really. an influence on the value systems, the belief systems of their peers. Implement that strategy with the goal of uh, trying to uh, change the patterns of behavior in that community uh, and, and have young people take on, you know, a more positive value system, and decreased negative uh, outcomes for young people in that
0: community. Right. So, And these are mostly communities of color in Boston, or at least, or not well, entirely? Actually, you tell actually, me. actually,
1: in, in, it, it, we tend to work in, in communities of color. That's uh-huh. where we are right now. But uh, mm-hmm. in Somerville, is a very mixed community. Mm-hmm. So you have a, a mix of kids of color and, yeah. and, and those who are Caucasian. Uh, kids as well. Yeah, so there are a
0: lot of, I wonder if you have some reflections, you as a white man going into Boston into mostly communities of color. I wonder if you have any reflections uh, as you said once to me, uh, who gets to start these programs and Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you've been doing this for years and years, decades really. Do you have some reflections or thoughts on how that works or is it working, what's going on in that whole uh, scene so to
1: speak. Yeah well this are sort of two questions, right? How, how was my experience with that? Yeah. Uh, and, and just to, to answer that question, that's changed over the years mm-hmm. you know um, uh, When I first began in the program in Boston in 1992, 93, Boston mm-hmm. was in a bloodbath. There were 180 murders in Boston uh, and uh, in 19, I think, 91, and uh, the stayed around uh, those yeah. areas. That's like, that's like more than triple than what's happening now. Right. And on top of that, the young people who were dying were really young people. They were like 14, 15, 16 years old. Mm-hmm. That's changed as well. So if you take a look at the numbers, even there's, you know, 40 or 50, too many, many, too many murders and injuries and so forth, they tend to be uh, a little bit older. So the the violence level among young people has decreased. Mm-hmm. So all this work, when people talk about the kinds of investments that have been made in Boston, uh, and and it's many programs, not just teen mm-hmm. empowerment for sure. There's many great programs in there. They really paid it off. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's more work to be done. It's not that, you know that's that's a big fallacy. People, oh well, we're in great shape now. Let's mm-hmm. not do it anymore. That's right. a huge mistake. Mm-hmm. But when I began, you know, race was an issue. My race was an mm-hmm. issue, but was, much yeah. less of an issue. You're in the huh. middle of a. Really, a bloodbath. and uh, you know the the things we were doing, running peace conferences, bringing gangs together, having people sit down who mm-hmm. you know had wars with each other and signed peace treaties, uh, folks were uh, uh, appreciative of that and mm-hmm. uh, and and that's allowed allowed us to to grow and develop. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, over the years, uh, there's been a growing awareness uh, of the importance of having people of color. Leading mm-hmm. programs, you know, and of course, teen empowerment is all about that. You know, the staff comes up from the the mm-hmm. program into into staff. Uh, the mm-hmm. the staff is comes from the youth. Uh, that's our best uh, you know opportunity to get staff. Um, so, and I think the whole issue of uh, you know awareness, awokeness, w- if you will, around mm-hmm. race has grown tremendously in society mm-hmm. over these years. So, um, you know, it it it. Uh, it is, uh, and, and I think the frustration of, of people of color as that awareness grows, of, mm-hmm. you know, the kinds of, you know, the average uh, white family has uh, uh, $250,000 or $300,000 of value, uh, you know, uh, savings of one kind in a house or whatever, mm-hmm. and, and, and people of color, it's, it's $8. Right.
0: So negative. Yeah, so negative. Death, so these, right. these
1: things are, these things are, are very, very painful. And and they create Mm -hmm. resentment and and anger. And then if you have the kind of national discussion that we're having, Mm -hmm. which is outrageous, Mm -hmm. you know, the things that the Trump administration does and says mm-hmm. and 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 his accolades in in the Congress and and mm-hmm. you see on television you know the anger that young people feel is is, is, is palpable mm-hmm. and understandable and gets kind of generalized as well mm-hmm. so it's, it's become more and more important for uh, people of color to, to lead organizations and mm-hmm. uh, that's something that I, I hope've I've helped to to spawn in in my organization, yeah, and well, certainly yeah, at Well, this let's point. talk
0: about that because I know you've now left a, a while ago as the quote executive director and. Uh, there were no
1: quotes around. <laughs> there <were> no quotes. <laughs> <laughs> you were the executive I was director, the executive. right? Right. Uh, thank you for clarifying <laughs> that.
0: That's really helpful.
1: Um, I know you've left. Uh, how long ago was it now? It's been a year that I uh, left the position of uh, executive director and became a a, a part-time, half-time person. Right.
0: I'd love to talk a little bit about that because transitions from baby boomers, hope you don't mind that expression, like you and me, uh, to younger people is something that's happening across a lot of social justice organizations, Mm -hmm. and I think it'd be really interesting to hear some about your experience doing that. Not that your experience is going to work for everyone, but uh, what that's been like for you. Yeah. And now that you're, uh, well, you're not exactly retired. I don't see you as the retiring type, but you have more time on your hands. Uh, Could you explain both <laughs> a little bit, maybe first about the transition, how that worked and uh, sure. And why I think you said it was important to have a person of color become the executive director at this point now, because mm-hmm. things are different.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah yeah well uh yeah absolutely that that is that was an important goal of the the process um I and we were open to you know all kinds of different people, and we had a completely open process. I actually had nothing to do with the hiring process or very very little to do with you the did. hiring process. The board yeah. wanted to do that, and they pretty much did do it. I had some input into it. I obviously met with people and did an interview and so forth um so uh, <clears throat> that was a re- there was a lot of conversation about my role going forward and a lot, you know, the mm-hmm. traditional thought is that the, the ED and particularly the founder, uh, that we can put quotes around the founder, right, uh, yeah. you know, shouldn't be involved, should leave, be gone, uh-huh. you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. I felt that that would be a big mistake mm-hmm. because teen empowerment is very complicated program, uh, technically, to, to run, mm. and, uh, and I felt like I still had something to offer and wanted to stay mm. involved with it. Um, and that was something that was agreed upon, but people were concerned about it. Mm. We hired Abigail Forrester, who is an African American, I think he's about 50 years old, has tremendous experience working uh, with Build and, right. uh, you know, uh, the Madison Park Development Corporation. Not a kid. Uh, right. Yeah, and, and just right. a very talented guy. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and very passionate, extremely passionate mm-hmm. and dynamic, very mm-hmm. dynamic personality. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, he was hired and we've been working together for over a year now, just over mm-hmm. a year. And uh, it's it's just working out tremendously because, uh, you know, first of all, I don't want to be the ED. <laughs> why is that? <laughs> well, I never actually... Uh, enjoyed the, that aspect of the program and wasn't that great at it. I mean, I, I don't mind doing fundraising and talking to people about the program and yeah. that sort of thing and advocating publicly. And so that that I, I more or less enjoyed that. I much more enjoyed the opportunity to work with youth, which mm-hmm. was I probably did a lot more than that than I should have done. Um, but that was really my passion and my main skill set. Terrible at the financial management aspects mm-hmm. of it. I'm not, you know, book bookkeeping and looking at, you know, financial stuff, my eyes just cross and somebody right. else needs to do that, you know. So, Abrigal is just much better at all of that stuff oh, yeah. and, and he's, mm. he's great at, at public representation mm. and, uh, and, as I said, he's very passionate about social change, which is, mm-hmm. is, is really my main, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, interest and, uh, and um, priority, you know, as well. So we've, we've uh, he came up with my title, which is a little bit long, which is the, the Director of, um, of uh, uh, <laughs> Model Fidelity and Consulting. So uh-huh. he, he came up with that, uh-huh. that title okay. because he wants the, the program to stay connected to the model. And, that the, and, okay. and so it's my job to, to assist people, to support people as they attempt to do the program and stay in fidelity to, TO THE MODEL. AND right. THEN I DO CONSULTING WORK WITH JOHN HANCOCK AND VARIOUS NATIONAL ORGANIZATIONS AND SO FORTH. Uh, SO THAT, that um, OPPORTUNITY TO WORK CLOSELY WITH, with HIM, AND REALLY mm-hmm. I WAS VERY HONORED AT OUR FUNDRAISER THAT WE HAD THAT, that Abrigal, uh RECOGNIZED ME AND SAID um, THAT, uh, YOU KNOW, THAT he, HE SAW ME AS SOMEONE WHO WAS DEDICATED TO HELPING PEOPLE WHO DON'T LOOK LIKE MYSELF. Mm-hmm. and um, I was honored to be recognized for that. Right, and yet
0: you said you thought it was important at this time to have a person of color leading the organization. Could you talk a little bit more about why that's important, why you think it's important now?
1: Well, I think it's, I think it's always important. It was always important. Mm-hmm. I mean, on, on a very basic level, right? Mm-hmm. How people operate, how they connect, mm-hmm. you know, their relationships are based on their background mm-hmm. and their culture. Mm-hmm. And so they're more, more comfortable with that, mm-hmm. you know. And there's some ways in which, you know, uh, I was, ne- I mean, I did not grow up in Boston. I right. understood poverty to a degree. Mm-hmm. I understood racism to a degree. Right. I didn't live it.
0: Right, that's you different. Know? Right. And
1: it is different. <coughs> and and uh, so that is important. And just, you know, how how decisions are made and who's going to, you know, You know, in terms of, you know, trying to develop a national model, which is what teen empowerment is, Mm -hmm. uh, it it was very difficult because, and we kind of discussed this, a lot of the national models, the folks who begin those models come from uh, backgrounds that give them a lot of privilege, Mm -hmm. that gave them a lot of resources and a lot of access to, to decision makers. That doesn't mean their programs are not good, their programs are great. But they had that opportunity to get the visibility and the support they need, being white mm-hmm. and connected. Mm-hmm. Being white in itself does not give you those connections. So I didn't. I didn't come with that right. that level of privilege. Uh, you know, my, as I said, my father owned a restaurant. He worked right. 16 hours a day. as right. a working class. Not guy. connected
0: to a lot of corporations. Not connected
1: it. to. Well, right. he actually died when I was 21. So if you you know, so that, that there was that loss as well. So, so you have one kind of opportunity or a pathway for, for tremendous growth, which is what I just talked about. And then the other is through, you know, being connected in the community right. and having access to decision makers and people of means through that pathway. Mm-hmm.
0: That wasn't so you. That you was started. not me. No, no, I get it, yeah. So,
1: so in, in, in hiring someone like Abergal, who is very talented, and also grew up in Boston, mm. and actually spent 10 years in jail mm. on a, a terrible inequity. Wow! Uh, you know, remember. and he talks about this a lot. So, wow. uh, you know, just to, to be clear, time. Uh, you know, he has experienced background, connections, passion. You know a, a package and now we we might have hired somebody who was not a person of color you know and who could have been great you know as well so I just want to be clear about that Abigail was absolutely the best person that we saw of any color or, or background so mm-hmm. he wasn't hired because he's an african-american because he, he comes from right. Boston and that was part of what was figured into it but you know he had a whole set of skills and understandings and, and as I said passion first for social change that really qualified right. him, more than qualified him, uh, for the job.
0: Right. We only have a couple minutes, but you talked about your own passion for social justice and social change. And what just in a, the little time we have, what's it been like now that you have a little more time? I mean, I know yeah. you're still working at Teen Empowerment, but you have more time. You're not exactly retired, but what's that like, and yeah. what opportunities do you see for yourself and perhaps others?
1: Well, uh, I have... I have uh, the opportunity to to continue to be engaged. And uh, I have a band called Stanley and the Undercovers, which uh, plays classic rock music, which takes up some of my time. And I've done a series of fundraisers. I'm doing this uh, process now called Dance for Dignity, mm-hmm. and we have one on March 14th at the UU Church in Arlington. Mm-hmm. And what the dances for dignity are, and that's that, a Saturday. That's so a we Saturday. Say the day yes, of the week day, and yeah, the day. 7 right? O'clock. Right. Uh, and you can find it on, on Facebook. Right. That evening.
0: So that's something you have. <laughs> you couldn't have done perhaps if you were still working full time as the executive director of Teen Empowerment. You have a little Correct. more time on your hands.
1: Right. And and the purpose of the is mm-hmm. to raise money for immigrant rights, mm-hmm. to help people who are facing detention, de- deportation, mm-hmm. and also to help s- asylum seekers who, uh, to, you know, host families. So we're trying to raise twenty-five thousand dollars with this process, and people who want to sponsor it. Mm-hmm. If you're interested in sponsorships, you know, please right. get in touch with me. So and,
0: in this extra time in your non-retirement, sort of retirement, I don't know what would you call it. But
1: I mean, I think I have more choice about how you I have use more my time. i more choice, dice. yeah. I'm, I'm very busy. I'm not quite as busy as I was before, right. but I'm mm-hmm. pretty close to as busy as I was before.
0: So you have, uh, so do you have any thoughts, uh, just what is it like to have that extra time? Uh, you know, I mean, this is what you're actually doing, but... How does that show up when you wake up in the morning, for instance?
1: I wake up later. <laughs> <laughs> That's one thing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, I think I don't have to run out of the house as much. It's uh-huh. really, and I, I, the thing that really became very old yeah. was working at night. And uh-huh. I don't do a lot of those. Also, I don't do things that I don't want to do. So, like, you know, I, I, I didn't enjoy certain aspects of my job. Yeah, sure. Most of it I did. But there were things that I didn't enjoy, okay. and I don't have to do those anymore. So that's, well, that's great. great. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, I think what you're saying is there are a lot of people, more and more, as baby boomers retire or work less, that are going to have opportunities to follow their passions. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that you're a model of, and I hope other people can learn from you and others who are, if not full-time retired, but at least have some more time on their hands, is how to, you know, make the world a little bit better place. So those words life, liberty, and the pursuit of Correct. happiness can hopefully be more than just words. Yeah, absolutely. And I really appreciate not only what you have done, what you are doing, the transitions you make, and I hope people will continue to support not only teen empowerment, but uh, the uh, work you're doing for immigrants and asylum seekers. So thanks a lot, Stanley. Yeah. It's, it's really great to have you here. Thanks, and, Michael. And may you live a long life and yeah, have many too. more opportunities <laughs> yeah, to do you this. Too. Thanks a lot. Okay, uh, so that's, uh, that's it for today and I hope you enjoyed meeting Stanley Pollack and uh, we'll look forward to seeing others in the future. Thank you very much. Again, this is uh, I'm Michael Jacoby-Brown and this program is We Hold These Truths. Thank you very much and uh, uh, we'll see you next week.